Hi, and welcome back to Spatulas and Speculations. I am your unofficial professor, Lily, or as you may more commonly know me as a happy hermit, and this is SJM 101, and today is the most 101-y episode I think I've ever made, maybe will ever make? I don't know. It's a requested episode where we're going to be talking about the gods, and I put that in asterisks and in parentheses, throughout the SJM universe. Now, um, I'm going to throw out my spoiler warning right now, really quick. There will be massive House of Sky and Breath spoilers. There's going to be Akatar spoilers. There's going to be Throne of Glass spoilers. So if you haven't finished reading everything by Sarah J. Mass, save this, follow me, come back and join the conversation when you are done. Now, if you remember, I did a theory episode on the Tog gods some time ago and how I think that the Tog gods are the Asteri's siblings. I you know, nothing is set in stone. No, There is no concrete yes or no, obviously. I still, I am, you know, there's a, there's a line, a black line, or a drawn line in the sand, and one is Tog Gods are not a Siri, the other side is Tog Gods are a Siri. Both of my feet are on the Tog Gods are a Siri, but my left foot is, like, on the line, and, like, my pinky toe hangs over the other side. <laughs> And we'll kind of, we're going to talk about why. But again, I, I was like going back and forth as I was do, putting together this episode. This episode is going to be a canon, um, canon with questions, no theory, just canon with questions. So we're going to be looking at all the canonic fact evidence that we know about the Tog gods because it was requested of me. And the thing is, is these canon facts, this evidence really does bring up a lot of questions. So we're going to dive into that because it would be impossible not to ask questions because there are questions to be asked. Um, but there won't be any theory. So like you guys know, I believe the Todd gods are a theory. That's just where I'm going to leave it. Um, you can come to your own conclusions at the end of this episode. I'm just going to give you everything that I know. Another caveat is this is the gods not including the three-faced goddess or the mother goddess. There is a whole episode on that as well. So this is this is just going to be, I'm going to try and do it interestingly, but it's really going to be a fact dump. Um, we're just going to be looking at all the names of the gods literally the, like what Sarah named them. I didn't, I didn't really dive into the names in the outside world because I don't think it, I wouldn't say it doesn't matter, but I don't think it like really matters. Um, and we're just going to be looking at what information we do have of them. For some of them, we have a lot of conflicting information. For some of them, we have no information. And for some of them, we don't even have their real name. So it's a weird episode. I'm going to try and like like it's like it, the it's the most it's the most classish episode I think I've ever put together. So it's gonna be interesting to go back through, I think, or to to talk it out, I guess. So with all that being said, these are my notes. I am human. I do miss things. It is especially hard doing episodes like this because if you type in just God like into the the kindle search bar you're gonna get like an afflutment of <laughs> um just like you know slang terms you type in solace into crescent city you're just gonna get a whole bunch of burning solace and solace spare me like just stuff like that same in you know throne of glass Akatar is fairly easy there's basically no gods <laughs> at all. Um, <laughs> so that one was good. But if you ever try to like look up um, 
mother cauldron that kind of stuff like you will get bogged down by like cauldron boil me cauldron spare like just that stuff um so it's really easy for your eyes to just like glaze over something and you might miss something important so just you know have that in mind i'm not perfect uh, I am human, and I'm not sanctioned by Bloomsbury or Sarah J. Mass, so um, I don't speak for them. There you go. These are interesting names. I might pronounce them wrong. I apologize if that happens. Bear with me. I am trying to be better. Thank you for having grace. So, with all that being said, we're going to do Tog Gods first. What's really interesting about the Tog Gods is they're... Um, there is no conclusive number to them, and I know that sounds weird, but when, so we have, there's 36 gods in the southern continent. Then in, in Air of Fire, we get nine figurines, and then in Empire Storms, Elena says that there was a dozen ancient immortal figures. So there's there's no there's no number there's no set number of how many gods there are because there are for like like the sin eater was a forgotten god so like where what number does that go into is, is silba considered one of the 36 gods in the southern continent is she separate of her own was she a part of the nine gods like it's so confusing it is so confusing and i honestly do not have an answer for you i wish i did and there's going to be a lot of that in this episode um i don't want to say like like there there's definitely some author yada yadding in the gods is what i'll say that's all i'm gonna say on that like it, there's not a lot of clear information and i think that there would have been i think that she was planning and I, I do still think um there was this book called the world of throne of glass that has an isbn number it was supposed to come out and then it got pulled and a lot of us think it was pulled because of Hosab and the crossover and that it might have just had too much spoilery information. Um, and I think in that, like, the world of Throne of Glass, we were supposed to get, like, a set list of, like, all the gods and stuff. So I basically created, I basically created, a, like, a wiki today. Well, not today. Throughout a few, few, few hardcore study sessions i created a wiki page which is it's not pretty but i did create it so that's kind of cool um so i think that that she had wanted to clear it up but just has not had the time i'm still really hopeful that the world of throne of glass will still come out eventually one day um <laughs> or maybe like the world of sarah j mass that would be even better to be honest but for now this is what we have the first god that we ever get mention of in Throne of Glass is Loomis. He is the god of love, the lord of gods, and the firstborn. He is mentioned in Throne of Glass chapter 36 at the solstice service, and it says, Today, the priestess says, is the day in which we celebrate the end and the beginning of the great cycle. Today is the day on which the great goddess gave birth to her firstborn, Lomas, lord of the gods, and with his birth, love was brought to Aurelia, and it banished the chaos that arose from the gates of word. And then a little further down it had said, clad in glistening wings, Lomas, god of love, strode past her. She crossed her arms. So, and that's all that's ever, 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 ever said about Lomas. Ever. And the rest, 
of the books. <laughs> doesn't say who the father is. Um, doesn't say what the banishment of the Gates of Word was. What does it mean to be the Lord of the Gods? Don't know. And what's interesting, I'm going to be, I, I'm going to try, I'm trying not to bounce around a lot, but I, I just, you know, this is going to be one of those episodes where, like, again, nothing is, like, super clear. Um, so, when we see the gods, only, like, a handful of them are, like, set apart as in, like, one of them sounded like wind, one of them sounded like steel. There was none that, like, the only one who seemed like, um, like, the leader, and I put that in parentheses, was Deanna, and you would think Lord of the Gods, Lomas, would have been the leader, but, I mean, Deanna was pretty B-I-T-C-H-E, you know what I mean? So I guess she could have easily taken, uh, the lead on that. The next god that we learn about in the same chapter, Tog 37, is Farnor, the god of war. And it says, Farnor, god of war, stopped at the row near Dorian, but then moved to the right across the aisle to give the miniature silver sword to Duke Parrington. Not surprising. So this chapter was was really interesting because it, it it was one of those like classic Sarah foreshadowy moments um and so the god of war or the child who was pretending to be the god of war gives Erwin who was pretending to be Parrington <laughs> a silver sword I I would assume the silver sword is it is his symbol some of the gods have symbols some of the gods don't again nothing's really clear the information is really just thrown out kind of haphazardly and that's okay it's fine it's oh it's 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 this i'm this is my inner monologue throughout all of my note taking it's fine it's okay you're crazy but the world the rest of the fandom isn't crazy so you you it's fine just be cool that's that's all i've been saying to myself i think i think we get to see um farnor in Koa and in EOS, Koa 97 and Empire Storms um, 65 in the times where the gods kind of show up to both Elena and to Aelin. But again, it's not clear, so it's just my guess. And it says, summon us to our world, girl, said the one with a voice like steel and screams. Let us go home at last. And then in another time it says, coward, said the one with a voice of steel and shields and arrows cower to shove the burden onto another i don't know like the voice like steel and screams could have been hellas but then i see the steel again with the shields so i think maybe it's supposed to be farnor do we get any other information about farnor absolutely not absolutely not so uh that's all i have on him <laughs> the next god we got is on our first unnamed god, it is the sea god, or the god of oaths. The first mention we ever get of them is in Era Fire chapter 29, and it says, A crab monger said he found a few discarded knives, small and sharp as death knives, in his nets recently. He tossed them all back into the water as a gift for the sea god. E the sea god is one of the um, few gods in Throne of Glass that we learn have a temple, and we see we see it in Queen of Shadows, and 
it's not funny. It's not funny. I, I'm not, it's not funny. I'm not going to laugh. But this is when <laughs> um, Kale and Nezrin go just before the big ending of Queen of Shadows. <laughs> and Nezrin's like, promise me you'll walk out of there. And Kale's like, I promise. And he, she brings him to the temple of the God of Oaths for that reason. So, like, he makes, you know, it's supposed to be, like, this big deal. And he rolls out of there for sure. <laughs> it's not funny. It's not funny. But it is, I mean, why did Sarah have to say walk out of there? Why did she have to do that? If she knew, if she knew when she was done writing the book, if she, before, she knew that Kale wasn't gonna, you know, was gonna have, uh, you know, problems with his legs later on, <laughs> like, she should have said some, like, different wording when she went back to edit it, and she didn't. She kept it. She kept it. Was that her foreshadowing? I don't know. But anyways, the temple is described as a small stone temple wedged between two market warehouses. The gray rock was worn, the columns flanking the entrance embedded with various shells and bits of coral. The golden light spilled from the inside, revealing a round open space with a simple fountain in the center. And then Nezrin drops a coin into it, I'm assuming, as like uh, some type of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? not sacrifice, um, what's the, what's the word, what's the word gift, I guess gift would work in that, um, what's, what is interesting is in this temple there are, it's like a, it's like a round dome, it sounds like, and then there are four benches, it says, Nezrin took a seat on one of the four benches set along the curved walls, a bench for each direction a sailor might journey in. She picked south. I want to point out, and this is a little bit off topic, but it hadn't reminded me of it when I was doing my notes, is, you know how the eight-pointed star is the symbol of the starborn? That's what Bryce has on her chest. That's what Nesta had on her back in her tattoo. A compass is an eight-pointed star. And I don't know what it, you know, I don't, I don't know what it, you know, ties to. I don't know, like, if it has anything to do with this. But, like, I just, I find it kind of interesting is, like, you know, you think of maps and compasses. I, I, I think of, like, sailors and stuff. So, I don't know. It just, it reminded me of it. It's in my notes. Maybe mostly just so I didn't forget it. I sometimes do that. I'll just, like, write in the corner of all of my notes, like, things I don't want to forget. And even if they don't really pertain to what, you know, whatever just sparked my the thought I just have to write it down really quickly or else I'll forget it um so yeah I just wanted to point that out we do get a glimpse in those two scenes in Kingdom of Ash chapter 97 and in Empire Storm 65 of you know this sea god and it says now said the one like crashing waves ordered we have waited long enough and then Again, it says, our sister's bloodline has betrayed us, said the one that was of sea and sky and storms. And again, that is all the information we have on them. We get a tiny little glimpse of one god in Assassin's Blade, Assassin in the Underworld, chapter one, and it's Kiva, Kiva, and it is the god of atonement. And it says this, every day he went on, Arabin, every day since you left, I have gone to the temple of Kiva to pray for forgiveness. 
She might have snorted at the idea of the king of assassins kneeling before a statue of the god of atonement, but his words were so raw. Was it possible he actually regretted what he had done? Be for real, Aelin. Be for real! Um, again, that's all the information we have. I don't... I... That's it. You know, nothing else. <laughs> now I'm going to get into the more beefier... Um, gods that are mentioned far more often we have a little bit more information on and the first one is Temis the goddess of wild things and shapeshifters first mention that we get of Temis is in Queen of Shadows 44 and it says if she were to do it it would have to be now this is when um, Lysandra is going to uh kill Arabin. I'm just gonna... I, I, sometimes I forget that I don't have to censor myself as much as I do on TikTok, so I don't get shadow banned for using naughty words or just in parentheses bad words. So if you ever hear me, like, pause a second, it's because literally, like, TikTok has rewired my brain so that anytime I speak and I like go to say the word like blood or knife or you know anything like that my brain actually pauses and it goes oh wait what's another way to talk around this because if you don't know this those words are are like if if the if the algorithm or the the AI overlord of TikTok knows that you've said something like that it will actually suppress your video it's it's it is wild but it, it is a hundred percent true so like if you ever see if it, I'm sorry if it happens, I really try for it not to happen when I'm doing the podcast, but it's so hard. My brain automatically just like goes, you can't say that word. Pause. It's, 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 it's disturbing. It's kind of disturbing that my brain has been rewired to serve the TikTok overlords, but it's true. So uh, when Lysandra goes to kill Arabin, this is what's happening. This is her thought monologue. When he was asleep was the deepest. When the rain covered up most the sound, a blessing from Temis, the goddess of wild things, who had once watched over her as a shapeshifter and who never forgot the caged beasts of the world. I think the most, there's two times where I think Temis is um, very predominant in Throne of Glass. And one of the times is when they go to Temis's temple and this is when Aelin and Manon um, have their fight where she ends up, where Aelin finds out that Rowan is her mate and where um, Aelin saves Manon and she feels that threat of fate pulling her as the same way that she felt the threat of fate pulling her to help and save Yurine in Assassin's Blade. So it's the same, this this very pivotal moment in, in time for them and it, and it and it happens in Temis's temple. So they're running. They go to... They have this meeting point that is Temis's temple. And this temple is pretty interesting. So it says in Queen of Shadows 56, The tiny temple was just inside the cover of Oakwald, perched atop a towering slice of rock in the middle of a deep ravine. It was accessible only via two dangling footbridges attached to either side of the ring, the ravine, which had spared it from invading armies over the years. So it's like, it's kind of, it's, I don't know, it's, it's me who's deathly scared of heights. <laughs> my feet literally even just thinking about it like go a little like you know that feeling where like you your feet like feel 
like they have butterflies in them. Does anybody else not feel and like the higher the the height the like the further those butterfly like like loose feeling feels like goes up your legs and yeah that's I feel that in my feet right now even just thinking about it. Um, so this temple had been abandoned. It says apparently people had given up on Temis long before the king of Elderlin came along. She just prayed that the bridges uh, on on either side held up, and then. She goes on to talk about how the entire circular space was barely more than 30 feet across, bordered on all sides by a sheer plunge and death. Temis apparently was not the forgiving sort. And that's it. That's all we really get on them in Queen of Shadows or the temple. There's no, there's no um, description of any kind of adornment, no description of a likeness, nothing like that. The other important piece that I think is really um, prevalent is when Dorian figures out how to shapeshift. And it says in Koa 32, his magic could leap between one element and the other, and yet the ability to shift to lay within something else entirely, lay within a part of him that had always yearned for the one thing above all others, to let go, to be free, as Temis, goddess of wild things, was free and uncaged, as he had once wished to be, when he had been little more than a reckless, idealistic prince, when the magic soul command, let go, let go of who and what he had become since that collar and emerge into something new, something different. We see a tiny glimpse again in those um, moments where the gods are um, visible to Aelin and Elena. It says in Empire Storms 65, Fool said the one with many shifting voices, both animal and human. And then in Koa 97, it says, It is done then, said the one with many faces, approaching the lock that hovered in midair, a flick of a ghostly, ever-changing hand. And the lock floated towards Aelin, landed on her lap, gold and glittering. I will, I will caveat and say that in Koa 97, I think, I think Aelin says that there is one with like three faces, like shifting faces. And I, I don't know how that could be the three-faced goddess. If we have the three-faced goddess in Akatar and we have the three-faced goddess in Crescent City and they're both named the three-faced goddess. And yet the three-faced goddess was just like hanging out with these other bummy, like parasites as Gavin calls them, or as Yurene and Gavin call them. So I'm, it, I'm inclined to think that that is the shifting faces, the shifting hands is Temis. But again, it's not clear and it's not stated. It's, it is, it is wild to me, especially because Manon sees this person or this being and she doesn't have any type of reverence. Manon seems completely indifferent when she sees the, um, flashback of the gods she's just like who are these things i don't care about them i would eat them if i could like and i think if she had seen the three-faced god I, I don't know if i mentioned this or if we talked about it i can't i can't remember it's been a while now but like i feel like manon would have been like oh my goodness bow at the feet like if she doesn't she has zero thoughts head empty does not care <laughs> not really but like you get my you know you catch my drift 
And that's all we have on Temis. <laughs> the next god we get is Hellas. Now, we've talked a bit about Hellas, but it was in um, theory mode in context of I do not think that Lorcan's um, powers came from Hellas. I'm still, you know, again, you know, it's it's never definitive. It's never yes or no. I could always be wrong. You know, blah, blah, blah. If there's a line in the sand, I'm mostly on that Hellas is not Lorcan's death god, but obviously there's one pinky toe onto the other side in which I could sway if pushed by a forcible wind called Sarah J. Mass. Um, and, and looking through the information we have of Hellas, I'm still inclined to think, like, it's, I don't know, well, you can come up with your own thoughts, I'll just give you the facts. The first mention we get of Hellas is in Queen of Shadows, chapter 20. It says, or Hellas, who offered violent burning ones when talking, it was Adian when he was talking about his death. He's just like, at this point, I don't even care if it's Hellas. I'd like it to be, I think it was like, I'd like it to be Silva, you know, the goddess of gentle deaths, but like, if it's Hellas, at least I'll be dead by now, because he was just in a fever panic. The interesting thing about Hellas is that typically the only information, like, the, the only thing that really ties Hellas other than Lorcan is that Hellas is the only god to have had a realm. None of the other gods have a realm. There is no, no heaven. There is, like, there's just the afterworld that they kind of talk about like spirits going to but there does seem to be like a hell a place of punishment for for souls who are evil like that kind of thing and that is tied to hellas uh i question that considering hellas was like i want to go home to the grassy fields with sunlight you know at the end of kingdom of ash wouldn't doesn't he if he had a realm and he had a throne which they do question at the end of kingdom of ash is there a hell realm now with an empty throne they're like we'll talk we'll think about it later in the bookend so they never think about it with us who knows what they're pondering now maybe we'll find out <clears throat> but okay pause in the in the conversation of gods I know we've, I know I've, I know I've voiced this out loud. I'm going to voice it again. What, how, why did the gods get stuck? And if they're stuck in the in-between and the gates were open, because Aelin shut the word gate and, and all that stuff, why did they need her to bring them home? If all the gates were open and they had all this time being stuck, couldn't they have just, like, do, 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 like, what? We never learn how they got stuck, why they got stuck, who got them stuck, how did that happen? We don't ever learn anything about that. Ever. We don't know where they were stuck, if it, they were stuck in the in between. Like, we don't ever get any information on that. And it's, you know, it's kind of wild to me considering the fact that, like, when you look at SJM and you look at, you know, all of her careful crafting, everything that she knows, all the things that she's laid out, like, it is absolutely bonkers to me that the entire Aelin's, Aelin's climax, Aelin's, Aelin's pivotal, you know, end moment, um, 
what's the word? I think it is uh, our conflict. Aelin's conflict. I had to, I had to go back into my high school <laughs> English brain to remember what the word was. Aelin's conflict is not Erwin, is not Maeve, is, is not, it, it is the gods and the gates. Yurene's conflict was Erwin, and she was the one who saved um saved Aurelia and ended the war. Fenris's, Rowan's, Lorcan's conflict was Maeve. They were the ones to finish her. With Aelin's help, yes, but it was Fenris who finished her. It was not Aelin's, you know, big moment. Aelin's big moment was the gods and the gate. Um, and I, I like to make that really clear because, um, some people like to say that Sarah, like, wrote Aelin as, like, you know, white savior of the world, you know, in her books when, you know, really it was a pregnant woman of color and a man getting revenge for the death of his brother and his sexual assaults. And so like Aelin, Aelin was only a piece of it, but there were three major conflicts at the end of Throne of Glass and that was Erwin, Maeve, and the gods and the gates. And Aelin only took care of a piece of it. So it was a team effort. It was a group effort. I digress. I do not, I don't understand. If, if Hellas had a realm, why wasn't he there? Pause, long silence for dramatic effect. I do not understand. I do not get it. So, you know, not, I just question it. I won't say like, you know, obviously I have a thought, a theory, and it's that it's he doesn't have a realm <laughs> but you know you have your own thoughts you have your own whatevers and back onto hellas we learned that hellas is the god of death and he has a consort anith and we'll talk about anith next he is considered the dark god and that's it that's all we know about him, other than, like, Lorcan's powers. But we don't ever see... We don't ever see him at the end of Kingdom of Ash in that one in that one section. He is never singled out um, by Aelin. So I don't know if he is a shadowy wisp. So... And we've talked about Lorcan's powers before. So, yeah. That's all we know canonically about Hellas. So let's move on to his wife. <laughs> Anith is never actually considered a goddess, or she's never given a title of goddess of. Um, she is just considered lady of the wise things, Hellas's consort, and clever goddess. The first mention we get of her is in Queen of Shadows chapter 20, and it says, and this is when Elite is talking about, like, her, the tools she has in her arsenal, and she says, easy to flatter, easy to trick, making people see and hear what they wanted to, was one of the many weapons in her arsenal, a gift from Anith, the lady of wise things. Finula, Finula, I don't actually know how to pronounce her nursemaid's name, had claimed the only gift Elite often thought that she had ever received, beyond her old nursemaid's good heart and wits. She never told Finula 
that she often prayed to the clever goddess to bestow another gift on those who had made those years a living hell. Death, and not the gentle sort, not like Silba who offered peaceful ends, or Hellas who offered violent burning ones. No, death at Anneth's hands, at the hands of Hellas's consort, were brutal, bloody, and slow. I think that that little end tidbit there could be the most important, in my opinion. To learn that there is the gentle deaths, there are the brutal or the violent ones, violent burning ones, and then Aminus deaths are like a whole other ballgame. Is that ever expanded on? No. <laughs> In Queen of Shadows chapter 85, it says, Walking under the trees a the forest buzzing around her, a lead pressed a hand against the pocket inside her leather jacket, feeling the hard little lump tucked there, the wordstone. She whispered a short prayer to Aneth for wisdom, for guidance, and could have sworn a warm hand brushed her brow as if in answer. It straightened her spine, lifted her chin. Limping, a lead began her long journey home. A lead often feels these nudges and prays her often, but... I don't really, I didn't, I, I'm not going to bore you with all those times because none of it really feels like substantial enough to be like, and this and this and this about Aneth. All I'll just say is, and you know this, they think, they say that Aneth was nudging a lead. One of the things that I think is really interesting about Aneth is that in the last times that Elite feels her is in Empire Storms 67, and it's right as Maeve is coming onto the page. It's right before, and the the voice that she hears, or you know, she kind of like it's like an imprint in her head, I guess. The voice becomes urgent. C C C. Then Aneth vanished entirely. No, fled. Why? would Aneth be scared of Maeve? Why flee at the mere presence of Maeve? Is it ever... Nope. Nope, it's not. I will, like, maybe kind of, like, to caveat on it, I would say... I didn't, I didn't put it in these notes because it could just be, like, a poem. Is the poem when they're talking about, like, the wordstone in the beginning at Throne of Glass, and it says, wordstone that the gods forbade. Like that is the wordstone like is really like closely tied to the valg so i don't know if it's like something to do with that or what it's never it's never expanded on it's never just you know carried on with um so i have nothing to add on to it but i will say like she fled entirely at the presence of mave and then i think elite only feels her or thinks she feels her one other time in the very beginning of koa and after that she never feels her again um same with Lorcan. I will also note that Lorcan stops feeling Hellas altogether in Empire Storms um, once they get to the Stone Marshes. That's the last time he ever feels Hellas. So do with that information what you will. In Empire Storms chapter 65, when all the gods are, we're getting those, that, you know, that moment when Elena sees all the gods 
it says, but one who saw all with wise, calm eyes said, unleash him so that we have been betrayed by these earth beasts. Let us return the favor, unleash the dark king from his coffin. So she doesn't seem very benevolent. I don't know what's wise about that. Wise and calm seems, she's kind of seems like a psychopath, to be honest. I mean, I'm not, you know, first thought, outside look, you'd be like, oh, Hellas is Hades, Aneth is Persephone, like, she must be, like, lovely and kind and bl-. No, I think she's, like, a straight-up psychopath. <laughs> like, cunningly planning out brutal, bloody deaths that last for eternity? Unleash the Dark King on the humans! We have been betrayed, in parentheses. Like, okay, Aneth cool. And that's all we get on her. That's all we, that's all we get. Um, aside from the fact that, like I said, Elite mentions that she stops feeling her in Koa. The next stone of God, Blast God is Deanna. Now, and I say that with a big old sigh for two reasons. One, she's a bitch. I do not like her for so many reasons. But the other reason I sigh is because there's this really confusing thing that happens. Um, and I guess it's like some kind of... I, I, I guess it it's something that, that ha- might happen in the real world. I think someone might have said something, DM'd me about it one time. But we learn that many, many, many years ago, long before Rowan, because Rowan says... Um, He's old, but not that old. So, like, we don't actually have a timestamp for when this happened. It was definitely longer than a thousand years. Um, so we don't know when it happens. But Mab, in Fire Chapter 3, it says, Perhaps Selena's skills and cunning weren't the usual in her bloodline, but Adian was an Ash River, not a Galathinius, which meant his great-grandmother had been Mab, the one of the three fey queens in recent generations crowned a goddess and renamed Diana, Lady of the Hunt. Why? Why did Sarah do that? I, like, there are a lot of things. No, there actually aren't. There are very few things. There are very, very few things that I want to, like, if I could, like, bring Sarah all of my tab books and my notebooks and my spatula and my whiteboard and, 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 and shove them at her and be like, explain, woman, it would be this. Why did she do this? I like, the gods are confusing enough, and then she just, like, piled that on. Because as you see later on, um, in, in Era of Fire, chapter 25, it says, um, Aelin says, it explained why today in the sun the temple had felt different, why her magic was jumpy. Mala, the sun goddess, Lightbringer, was the sister and the eternal rival to Deanna, keeper of the moon. Mab was immortalized into godhood thanks to Maeve, Selena mused as she ran a hand down the jagged rock. But what? But that was over 500 years ago. Mala had a sister in the moon long before Mab took her place. Deanna was the original sister's name, but you humans gave her some of Mab's traits, the hunting and the hounds. Perhaps Deanna and Mala weren't always rival. What are you getting at? So, the information that we have on Deanna in the earlier chapters, we almost can't even count. So they call Deanna goddess of the hunt. The hunt 
it should be in question marks because they that might have been Mab's trait that they gave to her. And maidens, huntress and protector of the young lady of the hunt. Again, those would have to be in question, like parentheses in question marks because is that just the trait that they gave from Mab? So is that actually information that we should be stocking on Mab, that she was a huntress and a protector of young? All that we know, I guess I would say, is Deanna is keeper of the moon. And that maybe, maybe an arrow is her symbol. Maybe. But the hounds, that was Map, as Rowan just said. So we don't really actually have any information on Deanna that are of her own. So I have no idea why Sarah had to do that, aside from she just wanted to, like, like just throw in some wild cards just to get us scattering a little bit make us a little confused as she was doing stuff on the other side like <sighs> obviously in empire storms we do see or ish see ish diana um when she takes over aelin's body and we see that cold light tendrils of silver flames we've talked about this um in a voice that was deep hollow young and old and then they go on to talk about how um, fire like ice, fire stolen from the stars, realized the cold of the stars, the cold of stolen light, not wildfire, but moon fire. And that's all we really get in that, that section. We, we have talked about that section before. We did a whole episode on that chapter. Um, Elena in Empire Storms 39 gives us a teeny bit of information and she says, Elena, where Damhan broke first. Deanna is a god. She does not have the rules and morals and codes the way we do. Time does not exist for her the way it does for us. You let your magic touch the key, the key opened the door, and Deanna happened to be watching at the exact moment. That she spoke to you all is a gift. You should manage that you managed to shove her out before she was ready, she will not forget that insult, majesty. We do see Deanna. Deanna is one of the two named gods in Kingdom of Ash, chapter 97. Deanna and Mala are the only ones that are actually, like, they where Aelin goes, that's Mala, that's Deanna. All the other ones are kind of left up for shrug shoulders and sucks-to-suck um, mentality. <laughs> that Sarah kind of just tossed at us so in koa 97 it says the gods looked among themselves then deanna moved graceful as a stag through a wood aelin loosened a breath bowing over her knees as the goddess approached elena not one but herself she would allow no one but herself to be sacrificed in this final task deanna laid a hand on either side of elena's face i had hoped for this and then she pressed her hands together Elena's head clasped between them, a flare of light from Mala and warning and in pain as Elena's eyes went wide, as Deanna squeezed and then Elena ruptured into a thousand shimmering pieces that faded as they fell. Aelin's scream died in her throat, her body unable to rise as Deanna wiped her ghostly hands and said, We do not make bargains with mortals. Not any longer. Keep Erwin if that is what you wish. That's basically the last thing we ever get of her and that's that like that's that's it 
she moved graceful as a stag through the wood. Aelin doesn't even describe what she, she looks like. <sighs> it's fine. It's totally fine. It's totally cool. I am a, I'm a relaxed, easygoing, casual fan. It's totally fine. It's great. Thank you, Sarah, <clears throat> for writing these books and giving us all these great things. The next god we get is Mala, sun goddess, lady of light, of learning, and fire. She is also titled Lightbringer and Firebringer. The first mention we get of Mala by name is in Era Fire, chapter 25. She examined a cluster of white stones, the sun goddess's temple, Mala, lady of light, learning, and fire. You've been bringing me here because you think it might help with me mastering my powers, my shiftings. A vague nod. She put a hand on one of the massive stones. It felt like... If she felt like admitting it, she could almost sense the echoes of power that dwelled here long ago. A delicious heat kissed all the way up her neck and down her spine, as if some piece of that goddess were still curled up in the corner. It explains why today, in the sun, the temple felt different, why her magic was jumpy. Mala, sun goddess, light bringer, was the sister and eternal rival to Diana, keeper of the moon. The interesting thing about Mala is the intimate relationship that we learn that transpired between Brannon and the goddess. Again, I question if Mala was able to somehow turn herself into some kind of mortal, to shove herself into a mortal body, doesn't even say if it was her mortal body, if she just took over someone's body, we don't know. We know nothing. Why would that be explained? It would make our lives far too easy. We don't get easy lives. Remember that. Why did the other gods do it? Maybe Was that considered slumming it? Like, what? If they were so bored, like, ugh. Could they not have done what Mala did and then go through the word gate that was open? Like, there were so many other solutions, in my opinion, from the very little knowledge that I can grasp on, that they chose the stupidest one. <laughs> like, they aren't smart. Is all I'll say. Mala also is one of the few gods that we are told have a symbol. So it says when they're talking about the amulet of Orinth, it says a medallion of cerulean blue with a white sun stag crowned with an immortal flame, the stag of Mala Firebringer. Um she is one of the few that have an animal. So the only other person that has an animal is Silba. And we'll talk about that in a, in, a, in a few, which we already have talked about it. But so I think it's kind of interesting that she she herself has her own symbol animal. We learn that she loved him fiercely. So she blessed Brannon. It's kind of like, it's really... It's really not described what happens between them. And again, I really wish it was because I feel like Brandon and Mala's story would have been absolutely beautiful and heartbreaking and wonderful. And I would love to read it sometime, Sarah. But it says, how do you think Brandon won himself such glory? 
and a kingdom. He was the discarded son of nobody, unclaimed by neither parent, but Mala loved him fiercely, so his flames were sometimes all that held the Val princes at bay until we could summon a force to push them back. Again, you should caveat that, you know, with an asterisk as in it came from Maeve, and this was before we knew Maeve was truly evil, so she could be totally lying here. We learn that Mala blessed Goldrin, and that in Queen of Shadows, I'm kind of, I'm just kind of moving through the bullet points here. Um, in Queen of Shadows, we learn that her day is the summer solstice, and it is when. Aelin's magic is at her just top peak and in 74 of Queen of Shadows in that moment where she is going off against Dorian and Dorian's father she says the light hit her and it filled her heart with the force of an exploding star we talked about it last week um did we talk about it last week yeah we talked about it last week yeah we did um about the whole, like, the sun is a star, the Asiris star, Aelin star, all that stuff. Like, again, we just get that little piece of information there. In Empire Storms, they, they start questioning that relationship between Brannon and Mala, and they say in 39, is it truly possible for a god to become mortal like that? Rowan, who had been watching Aelin a bit warily, twisted to him. I have never heard of such a thing, but Fae have given up their immortality to bind their lives to that of their mortal mates. Dorian had a distinct feeling Aelin was desperately, exam deliberately examining a spot on her short shirt. <laughs> it certainly is possible Mala found a way to do it. It's not just possible, Aelin murmured. She did it. That pit of power and covered today that was from mala herself elena might be many things but she wasn't lying about that so these godlike beings can have children we're never told if any of the other one had children you can't see me but i look like i look tired i'm gonna be on like i feel like i should be doing this with like a glass of wine and a cigarette and the charlie day meme behind me like Am I a joke to you, Sarah? What does that mean? What do you mean? What do you mean Mala could have kids? Like, what What are you talking about? How did that... I don't... <sighs> of course, Mala does not stay in s mortal in parentheses. In Empire Storm 65, we learn um, about the lock. And it says... She had not seen or spoken to her mother, Elena, since she had left her body to forge the lock, since Rhiannon Crokin had helped Mala cast her very essence into it. The mass of power contained within a small witch mirror disguised as a blue stone, to be unleashed only once. They had never told Elena why, never said that it was anything more than a weapon that her father would one day desperately need to wield. The cost, her mor mother's mortal body, the life she had wanted with her self, with Brannon, and with their children. It had been ten years since then. Ten years her father had never stopped waiting for Mala to return, hoping that he'd see her again, just once. 
I will not remember you, Mala had said to them all before she had given herself to the lock forging, and yet there she was, pausing as if she remembered. Mother, Elena whispered, a broken plea. Mala Lightbringer looked away from her. So, again, I, I know I think I've mentioned it, but, like, Brandon and, and Mala had multiple children, but literally only Elena is ever mentioned, which, it's fine, it's cool, I'm a casual fan, everything is fine. Of course, um, we get this interesting little tidbit of information in Kingdom of Ash, chapter 23. Um, and I know I've mentioned it before, and I'll just mention it again in this episode, a really interesting um, shift in tone um, that comes to the gods from the Throne of Glass characters from Empire Storms into Kingdom of Ash is really interesting and I think it really shows the shift in which Sarah had a very clear idea of where she wanted the future of all of her books to go and you can see that because even in Empire Storms when Elena is talking and and I'll mention it I'll, I'll read the whole quote at the very end she goes on to say that they're just creatures of another world and this once that is written in the books, the entire tone shifts for all of the characters in Sarah's writing. As if Sarah is like, okay, I see where this is going. Um, I need to kind of pivot just a teeny bit to to let them lose that quote-unquote godliness and kind of um, drag them into, into another category. And you see that really clearly here in Koa 23. Um, this is with Rowan, and he says, Overhead the stars shone clear and bright, and though Mala had only appeared once to him at dawn on the foothills across this very city, though she might be little more than a strange, mighty being from another world, he offered up a prayer anyways. I just, you know, I just always want to point out that tone shift that happens, and I really think that was actually just Sarah internally with her own writing going like, oh yeah, there needs to be a shift in 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 what I what I now know to be true for these people. Um Elena or Mala is the only one mentioned uh again by name in that other than Deanna in Koa ninety eight and she was a pillar of light and flame shining in the mist. Obviously she gifts Aelin that force um of of power that could level a world flung it towards the lock and that was it the last mention the last mention of mala is actually really interesting it happens in koa 119 when aelin is being crowned and she says he raised it towards the shaft of light pouring through the bank of the windows behind the dais the ceremony chosen for this time this ray of sun this blessing from mala herself and though the lady of light was forever gone, Aelin could have sworn she felt a warm hand on her shoulder as Darrow held the crown to the sun. Now we we get this this hand, this warm hand with Elid, with Yurin, with Aelin, and with Manon. And Yurin and, and Aelin feel it after the gods are gone. So that kind of makes me question if throughout all of these, you know, moments that we're like told are 
silva guiding or mala guiding is it actually not them and they just thought it was that's my question and that's why i'll leave it all right the last one the big one i think it's the last one silva goddess of the healers bringer of peace and gentle deaths lady of gentle deaths there's a lot of information in, interesting information about silva two of them i i oof i don't know it it kind of sent me into like a why it was like a it was like a uh, did i have you have you felt the vibe of today's episode of today's topic of just like of just i don't even know how to, like it's 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 giving tired dad energy that's what it is i'm giving tired t- like rub like i i feel like <laughs> I feel like tired dad energy right now. Um, so we learn first mention of Silba is in Air of Fire chapter six. By some lingering grace of Silba, goddess of healers and bringer of peace and gentle death, she managed to keep them from trembling as she patched up his hand too. Sorsha leaned against the counter and loosened a long breath. Um, well, I say first mentions, um, of Silba. Technically, you do get a lot of mentions of Silba in Assassin's Blade, um, but I always just put Assassin's Blade last in my head for some reason, just when I take notes. I don't really know why. It probably should be first, but it's not. Um, so I just, I'll put that caveat. Um, but two pieces of information come back to back when it comes to Silba. The first one is in Air Fire, chapter 8, and it says, The words haunted Selena that night, kept her from sleeping. Even though she was so exhausted, she could have wept for the dark-eyed Silba to put her out of her misery. The dark-eyed Silba. It's not the first time that's mentioned. In Queen of Shadows, chapter 17, it says, It was as much as any sign as anything. Perhaps the dark-eyed Silba would offer him a kind death instead of a cruel one at the blood-drenched hands of Hellas. Either way, he found himself smiling. Death was death. What the- What? Ha- <sighs> Sarah. What? What do you mean, dark eye- Who's seen her eyes? Who's seen her eyes? What do you mean, dark-eyed? What does that mean? What do you mean, <laughs> Dawn chapter two. We learn this the tour, the tower. It dominated the southern edge of Antica, nestled atop the highest hill to overlook the city that sloped down towards the grass, the green sea. Domain of its famed healers, a tribute to Silba, the healer goddess who blessed them. Of the thirty six gods in this empire, had welcomed into their fold over the centuries from religions near and far. In this city of gods, Silba remained unchallenged. So, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say about this. 
about Soba being like the unchallenged god of the 36 in the god city. Like, I have no... <laughs> I have I have no thought. I had empty no thoughts. And it's because, like, she was brought over by the Fae who came to the southern continent. And these Fae vanished mysteriously and disappeared and were, like, never seen again. So, yeah. In Tower of Dawn, Chapter 6, we get a little more information about her. She is, again, like I had said with Mala and how I said I was going to talk about it, is she is given a symbol and an animal, and that is clear here in Chapter 6. There are two other doors up here, one locked that led into Hafiza's personal workshop, and the door that led to the healer on High's bedroom the former carved with an owl taking flight, the latter owl at rest, Silba's symbol. It was everywhere in the tower, owls carved and embossed in stone and wood, sometimes in unexpected places with silly expressions, as if some long-ago acolyte had etched them in as a secret joke. But the owl and the healer on High's private workshop even though it perched atop a gnarled branch of iron that flowed across the door itself, wings flared wide as if prepared to leap into the skies. It seemed alert, aware of all who passed that door, who perhaps gazed too long in the direction of the workshop. None but Hafiza possessed a key to it, handed down by her predecessor, Ancient, half-forgotten knowledge and devices lay within. The acolytes whispered unnatural things that were better locked up than let loose into the world. So, yeah, a spooky owl that is watching people. That's Silba's symbol. We went into this when we talked about Anthral and how Anthral had a shift form and how Anthral served Silba and how he was Brannon's bestie. And Anthral was also supposed to be the lover of Maeve? Questions, questions, questions. We later learn that Silba has an element in and a color in Tower of Dawn 9. She's the only one with a color. Um, the, an acolyte had been waiting in a lightweight robe of lavender, Silba's color. And then right after that, it says water, Silba's element. Um, we, we, get, we get nothing on that. Why do the other ones have them? What is the color of Temis rainbow, I would assume? Um, but yeah, we, we don't ever get any more information on that and nothing with like the other gods. So it could just be like, I think a lot of, a lot of the stuff that we learn about the gods is just given to them from the people. Like it's not necessarily theirs, but it's just been widely adopted as theirs, if that makes any sense. We later learn in Tower of Dawn, and this is the last thing I'll say on her, is that, actually I have one other thing to say on her, is that she made Anthral's ring, and she was the one who blessed it. The last thing I want to say on her is, 
they say that Soba mostly only blesses women, but there are actually some male healers. Obviously, Anthral was supposed to be male, and he had her power. So I do think that's interesting, and we've talked about that in the context of mostly witches are female, but there are some male witches. So like there is that kind of like interesting parallel between the two, and I'll just drop that there and kind of move on. I want to note at the very end of Tower of Dawn, when Yurine is saving Kale and she makes this bargain, she says she doesn't call her Silba. She doesn't say it was Silba who was there. She just says the other was helping her. And she also still thinks she feels what she thinks was Silba when she takes out Erwin, despite the fact that Silba was supposed to be gone. Because she was one of the the twelve nine nine or twelve gods the nine or twelve gods of Aurelia. <laughs> Is there a clear number? Absolutely not. Um, that's all I'm gonna say on her, and that's all I have on those core gods. The southern continent, um, we get mentions of a few gods, um, very briefly. The most interesting to me is Vaneth, and she is only mentioned once and in one paragraph, and it is in Tower of Dawn, chapter 13. And it says, um, this is in Nezrin's perspective, it says, they reported that Rifthold was full of terrors, people who were not people, beasts from Vaneth's darkest dreams. I think that's interesting when, so Vaneth is goddess of the dead. Her presence in the city predated even Silba's healers, her worshippers, a secret sect that even the Khan and his predecessors feared and respected. Despite her rituals being wholly different from the eternal skies, to which the Khan and the Duran believed they return. Nezrin had walked swiftly past Vanth's dark, stoned temple earlier, the entrance marked only by a set of onyx steps descending into a subterranean chamber lit with bone-white candles. So it says, beasts, beasts <laughs> from Vanth's darkest dreams, which kind of sounds like Apollyon and like the the prince of hell and the pit of then his beast like there could be some like overlap here and they might have just given it like a feminine whatever i saw a theory someone presented it to me it's not mine i do love it i do adapt it a little bit in my head is so i and we'll i'll mention it very briefly at the end of the throne of glass section here but i i won't spend super super long even though I could always, always talk about my favorite man, the Bone Carver. So we, we kind of talked about, like, if the Bone Carver was the truth god in Throne of Glass, then can we see his siblings elsewhere? Um, and someone had said, like, could the Weaver bend Vanith? And I kind of love that, to be honest. Like, she was a death god in, in Akatar, and we'll, I'll mention her again very briefly later on. So, like, goddess of the dead, death god... I don't know. I like it. Seems kind of cool. Would be an interesting tie. The next god in the southern continent we get mention of is Bast in Tower of Dawn 10. It seems even the library's beloved Bast cats, 36 females, no more, no less, could not keep out all vermin despite their warrior goddess namesake. And that's all we get on the goddess bit. Obviously, we get a bit of information on the Bast cats, which we have talked about. But 
yeah, that's all we know about the goddess. And then we have Enea Inna, goddess of peaceful households. In Tower of Dawn, chapter 17, it says, Nezrin grinned, letting her aunt lead her towards the spacious interior of the home, past the curvy-bodied statue of Inna, goddess of the peaceful households and the Balruni people, her arms upraised in welcome and in defense. Perhaps the palace's inferior cooks is why the royals are so skinny. That was her aunt saying it. So that's all we learned about her. And then we have Neith, um, which is the goddess of archery and the hunt. And it says in Tower of Dawn 25, he rested his forearms and his knees. This is Sartak. That is why my spies called you what I called you until you arrived. Neith's arrow, the goddess of archery and the hunt. Originally hailing from the ancient sand-swept kingdom of the West, now enfolded into the Connegate's vast Patheon, which, if a man does not describe you as a goddess before he even meets you, he is not worth your time, ladies and gentlemen. May we all have the absolute, what is the, what's the word? Oh, riz. Let, let, let us all have the riz of Sartak. Are you kidding me? That man carried Tower of Dawn for me. I wish we had, I wish it was just him and Nezrin's book. Book, to be honest, it would have been amazing. I love Sartak. Sartak walked so Cassian could run, and I will die on that hill. Die on that hill. And I have evidence to, to back up that statement, just so you know. We get one other <laughs> goddess, and it's... I, I, I do not know how to pronounce it, and I am really sorry, but it's Tome? Tome, T-E-H-O-M-E, T-E, home, tome, teom, goddess of the sea, lady of the great deep in Tower of Dawn 18. Um, we get this um, kind of in the beginning of Tower of Dawn that there's a festival to be held in her namesake. To begin, why don't you join me to Tome's feast the night after tomorrow? I can't keep Kirshen occupied if that will help. If that will clear the way for you, her stomach turned over. She had forgotten that the sea goddess's holiday was in two days. Hazar certainly be honoring Tome, and the Connegate would certainly not fail to honor the Lady of the Great Deep either, not when the oceans had been so good to them these centuries. And then when, then we see them um, actually performing this holiday, um, there would be a ceremony at sunrise down by the docks with all the royals, even the Khan, attending to lay wreaths into the water, gifts for the Lady of the Great Deep. And that's all we learn about her. And then in, in Assassin's Blade, Assassin in the Desert, we learn about one of the other goddesses of the southern continent, and it's Lani. And Aelin says she was standing under a striped awning of a vendor from the southern continent, debating if she had enough to buy a pair of curled-toed shoes before her and the lilac perfume she had smelled at the wagon owned by white-haired maidens. Maidens claimed they were priestesses of Lani, the goddess of dreams and perfume, apparently. That's all we get. There is a bonus... Um, unnamed god mentioned once in Queen of Shadows, chapter 83, 
I don't even know if I would even can I I have it I have it in the notes I have it on the list but I don't really know if it's just like you know a term a slang term you know whatever but it says down the halls they flew as if the god of wind were pushing at their heels so we have an unnamed god of wind as well so obviously I could talk about the truth god and the sin eater I'm not going to because he is distinctly separate from these gods so Aelin says there were nine figurines and fire gods and goddesses that were looking at her. Empire of Storms chapter 65 says there was there were a dozen. And in Koa, they talk about 12 being sent away. So far, from... I did these notes twice. I did them, like, almost a year ago, and then I redid them for today's episode because I was, I thought I had missed something and I didn't trust myself, and I'm still left with the same answer as before. I literally redid all of my notes twice. That took me, like, 10 plus hours to do. I'm insane, I know, but it, so we have Lomas, Farnor, Deanna, the unnamed sea god, Hellas, Kiva, Temis, Silba, Mala, Anith. That's ten. And then we have maybe that unnamed god of wind. And now we're... So, so to make twelve, we would be missing one. So I... Like... It blows my mind that it... I, could it be the three-faced goddess? I don't believe, like, no, like, no way, right? Like, like, no way? I know nothing at all. I don't know what's, like, I, I'm, I feel done, and I still have to go through Akatar and Crescent City in this episode, and I feel done already. I should have saved Tog for last. Always save Tog for last. Um, but we do, I want to, I want to focus our attention on what we do learn about these gods in Empire Storms 65, this is in Elena's perspective, or they're, they're watching Elena, and it says, It is done, she said, shifting her attention to the dozen ancient immortal figures, now on the other side of the sarcophagus. Gavin started, hissing as it is broken body with a sudden movement. They had no forms. They were only figments of light and shadow, wind and rain, song and memory. Each individual and yet a part of one majority one consciousness. They were all gazing at the broken lock in her hand, the stone doll. And then she says, Elena's very bones quailed in their presence, but she kept her chin high. She goes on to say, not just gods, but beings of higher, different existence, for whom time was fluid and bodies were things to be shifted and molded, who could exist in multiple places, spread themselves like wide nets being thrown. They were mighty and vast and eternal as humans were to a mayfly. They had not been born in this world, perhaps had been trapped here after wandering through a word gate. Through a word gate? What is there, multiple? <sighs> and they had been stuck, and they had struck some bargain with her father and Mala to at last send them home, banishing Erwin with them, and she had ruined it. And then to round out, you know, everything, we get 
we get that piece of information from Gavin when they're talking about the all-seeing one when Dorian's just like isn't your god a part of that and he's just like absolutely not are you kidding me you think that my in-laws are are gods compared to my like now like imagine having to like imagine someone saying that your in-law was a god (laughs) like you would be like no way that's how oh well that wasn't Gavin so it's yeah, well, I guess he was technically his in-laws. Yeah, it was his in-law, because his mother. It was his in-law, his mother. He's like, yeah, my mother-in-law, a god, a goddess. Ha! So, no. And Dorian kind of pieces some information for them at the end of Koa in 91, and it says, And what of the other gods in this world, Nezrin asked, frowning, the 36 of the Kanagat, are they not gods as well? Will they be sent away, or just these twelves? Perhaps our gods are of a different sort, Princess Hazar mused. Can they not help us then? Yurine asked, sorrow for the goddess who had blessed her, still darkening her golden eyes. <laughs> of course she has golden eyes. Can they not intervene? There are indeed other forces at work in this world, Dorian said, touching Damaris's hilt, the god of truth. That's who had blessed Gavin's sword. But I think those forces, if those forces had been able to help aid us in this manner, they would have done so already. So he, Dorian kind of goes out of his way to say, like, there is separate entities. And when he's having that conversation with Kaltin, he's like, oh, there are other gods. And she's just like, (laughs) secrets, like i'm not spoiling things so like dorian is definitely opening up the the way for throne of glass to kind of like come back in this sense um which i do find really interesting considering the fact that at the end of, uh, of kingdom of ash they were they were talking about you know the hell realm and they were talking about where vaughn was and stuff like this so they think there are still loose ends in throne of glass and one of them is the this god's root that Sarah kind of wove us through. Um, so yeah, we do have the truth God who blessed Damaris, who had a very, very detailed temple, who I adore and love, who's sassy, as Gavin says, the all-seeing one does not claim kinship to those spineless creatures. Dorian could have sworn a dusty, bone-dry wind rattled to the past. Then what is he? Can there not be many gods from many places, some born of this world, some born elsewhere? That is a question to debate another time. And that's all I'm going to leave you with on the Throne of Glass gods. That's all that we get as information for them. Are we missing one? Is it the three-faced goddess? Is everything that I know to be a lie? If the three-faced goddess was the one trapped with them, then why do we have the three-faced goddess in Akatar and in Crescent City? That does not make sense. Sarah, please make it make sense because it absolutely doesn't. (laughs) Let's slide into Akatar. There's not a lot to talk about because, as they say in literally chapter one of Akatar, Anything but fairies, the hunters had beseeched our long-forgotten gods, and I had secretly prayed alongside them. Then later, we mortals no longer kept gods to worship, but if I had known their lost names, I would have prayed them. So, we 
we get nothing on the gods of Akatar aside from the fact that their names are forgotten or that the Archerons have at least forgotten them. Um, and that they are, they are, their names are lost. Um, but we do get, um, a really cool piece of information in Akawar 22 with Cassian and Feyre when they're going to go visit the Bone Carver and they're hiking up the mountain. And it says, but Cassian scanned the gray, heavy sky as if hunting for spying eyes. Then the moss and the grass and the rocks beneath their boots for listening ears below. There was life here, he said, answering my question at last, before the high lords took Perithian. Old gods, we call them. They ruled the forest and the rivers and the mountains. Some were those things. Then magic shifted to the high fae, who brought the cauldron and the mother along with them. And though the old gods were still worshipped by a select few, most people forgot them. I grappled onto a large gray rock as I climbed over it. The bone carver was an old god? He dragged a hand through his hair, the siphon gleaming in the watery light. That's what legend says, along with the whispers of being able to fell a hundred soldiers in one breath. So we get this tiny little piece of information about old gods, that they they ruled the forest and the rivers and the mountains and some more of those things. I'm inclined to believe that maybe like the middle could be like an old god. I don't know. Because like they have this like piece of information about wild magic in the middle and like how you're not allowed to map it because its mysteries are supposed to be held, its secrets are supposed to be held, and if you, like, disobey that, then the middle can, like, invoke judgment and punishment on you, which... Okay? Okay? Um, so that's all we get on that. And then we learn about the Bone Carver in Akor 23, when he's talking about the, his siblings, Kashi <laughs> and Striga. And he goes on to say, the carver's eyes burned like the hottest flames. To hide from my siblings. I blinked. Why? They are death gods, girl, the carver hissed. You are immortal, or long-lived enough to seem that way, but my siblings and I, we are different. Pause. They are like those true immortals that we've been talking about, um, that are somehow, that are like separate that maybe caused Blaze to turn black. Okay, back in. And the two of them, stronger, so much stronger than I ever was. My sister, she found a way to eat life itself, to stay young and beautiful thanks to the lives she steals. The weaving, the threads inside that house, the roof made of hair. I made a note to throw Reese into the Sidra for sending me into the into that cottage but the carver himself if they are death gods i said then what are you death he had asked me over and over about death about what waited beyond it what it felt like where i had gone i'd thought it a mere curiosity but i am forgotten that's what i am and that's how i prefer to be not to me, bestie. Not to me. So, technically, Kashi, the sorcerer who likes birds, apparently, is a bird man. 
you wouldn't think he was a bird man, but I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if he's got little binoculars and he likes to perch and <laughs> go bird hunting. Um, and then the weaver are considered gods. And the bone carver is technically considered a god. Um, and the only other, like... There's two other people that get mentioned um, that are considered gods before we talk about the last one, the big one, the important one. And that is Analius. And we get the first mention of Analius in Act War 56. And it says, Nesta listened to the low-level Illyrians whispering about how Cassian had thrown that spear. That spear, the spear throw that Cassian does in the war... I probably one of my one of my favorite scenes in in Akawar, to be a hundred percent honest. Like the absolute chills I get from that scene of him like booming it. Ugh. Ugh. I'm not really a Cassian girl, but for that scene, I absolutely am. How Cassian had thrown the spear, how he had cut down soldiers like stalks of wheat, how he had fought like Analius, their most ancient warrior god and the first of the Illyrians. And in Akasif 71, we get a tiny bit more information about that is in, in, and it says, the male pushed off the rock of the archway, not sparing a glance at the warriors he had let die for him. You know, our first god, the first of the Illyrians, held ground against an enemy hordes right where you're standing. There wasn't a scratch on him, no sign of exhaustion despite the climb. Belius smirked, he drew a line in the dirt as well. He nodded towards it. Nice touch. So, um, I don't know if, I don't, I don't know if an alias is a god, a demigod. I, I don't know. They could have just given him godhood, kind of like they did with Mab. That's all the information we really get on him being a god. The last little tiny piece of information that we get is in Akasif 76, and it says, When Elaine began praying to the Fae's foreign gods, to their mother, Nesta bowed her head too. I think it's interesting that Nesta notes foreign gods instead of forgotten gods. So does Elaine and Nesta know the names of the gods? Do they just never mention it? Like, I don't know. The last person we get that I'd like to talk about is Nyx, and that's in the face and bonus chapter of Akasif, and they're, they're thinking about the name for their child, and Reese says, what about Nyx? He pointed to the wall of books in the study. A leather-bound tome floated towards his open hand. He wordlessly flipped to a page and then passed it to me. I scanned the text inside. An ancient night goddess from around the time of the trove, actually, Reese said. She's mostly been forgotten now, but I like the sound of her name. Why not use it for a boy? And they say his name three times. And after the third time, uh, they could have sworn a flutter of night-kissed power rose in answer. Reese sucked in a breath as if he also felt that kernel of power. So, the only, like, true goddess that we actually get that's named is Nyx from around the time of the Trove. And that's it. I will, I'm going to put in this little bonus, and that is in Akawar 27. Um, it's not actually an Akatar god, but it's in Akatar, so I'll throw it in. Amran toyed with her black earrings, a messenger, soldier assassin for a wrathful god who ruled a young world. And that's all we get on that. Aside from the fact that Amran's father, who was that god, opened up a rift for her to go through. 
That's all we know about them. All right, let's talk about the Crescent City gods, because I think this is where... This might be... This, I think this could be pretty interesting. I want to note, before we get, like, super deep into it, is that, like, if you were to go into your Kindle and use the search function, which, if you don't use that, and you're a big theorist, you should, because it's really helpful. If you were to type God of you will get nothing. If you were to type goddess of, you will get nothing. So the, in the way that we got like god of death, goddess of fire, like, you know, you know, that stuff, goddess of peaceful death, you know, we got that. We don't get those titles, um, with the goddesses in, uh, in Crescent City, which I find really interesting. And the other thing about the Crescent City gods that I find really interesting is that in, So, in Throne of Glass, Mala is, like, the goddess of the people with fire. And then you have Silba, who is, like, the goddess of the healers. And, like, stuff like that. Um, I kind of think that, like, that's very similar to the way that the house structure is. But I don't really have a lot of deeper thoughts other than that. I will say, um you know, on, on that first page when, when they say like, you know, the houses and who's in the houses, there's like a, a little note that says like that even Erd couldn't see, Erd is fate. It brings me back to when the surreal is talking about the bone carver with Farah and she's like, will he help us win the war? And the surreal goes, I cannot, I, I can't tell you something like that. Um, his threads are not of this world. I can't see his fate um, like I can't everybody else's because he's he's not woven into the threads of this world. So I kind of wonder if, like, um, Flame and Shadow, because they're supposed to, like, come from, like, basically hell and, you know, adjacent, if Erd can't see them because technically their fates weren't woven on the Midgard. And on top of that, I wonder if Bryce never really got a... A, like a fate like when she went to go get a prophecy if she never got a prophecy because maybe her fate wasn't completely woven on Midgard if that makes any sense and I just want to like throw that out there really really quick um for whatever reason um because I wanted to I guess is what I'm gonna say so Organus is the first god that ever gets mentioned by name and it's in House of Earth and Blood chapter 2 and it says except for Philip Briggs Bryce sent a prayer to Organus's blue depths that the sea goddess would whisper her wisdom to Briggs. In chapter 33, it says, I shall give you what time Organus offers the smoke parted and he sucked in a breath at the being that emerged. Organus, keeper of the mysteries, is who is the t- is their title, um, is her title. I guess she's, um, but the, the strengths who give people their prophecies, apparently speak for Organus, which I think is really fascinating, to be honest. Um, And it's never, there's not much to go on off of that. We do learn that Organus had children. Five children, actually. In House of Earth and Blood, chapter 42, it says their magic mostly involved the element in which they lived though they could summon tempests. The river queen, part myrrh, part river spirit, could summon far worse, they said. Possibly wash away all of Lunathan if provoked. She was the daughter of Arganus, according to legend, born from Arganus, according 
born from the mighty river that encircles the world, and sister to the ocean queen, that reclusive ruler of the five great seas of Midgard. There were there was a fifty fifty chance that the goddess be thing was true of the river queen, Hunt supposed, but regardless of the residents of the city did their best not to piss her off. Even Micah maintained a healthy, respectful relationship with her. I I I'd be inclined to believe it, um, that she is the uh, somehow, I don't know, something because she's the river queen is old as dirt sea dirt. And she has really interesting powers, and I didn't notice it until I was doing my Hosab reread, but she was, the the water was able to, like, tell her about Sophie and, like, all this stuff, and it, it kind of reminded me of, like, the western wind or the wind that's whispering to everybody in Agatar. So I'm inclined to think that she is some spooky being, I mean, aside from, like, her age alone. Um, but yeah. I don't know who her father is. That's never, that's not even a question anybody ever brings up. Why would they? That would make too much sense. We learn that Organus is the bringer of storms uh, in Hosab 23. And that's about it. That's all we learned. There's a few, like, statues of her, but they're never actually described in detail of what she looks like. So I'm not even going to waste your time with that. You'll see that with a lot of the Crescent City gods. Um, there's not a lot of information, but there are a few, like, busts of them, but they're not actually described in what they look like. Because that would be too easy. Mm-hmm. Then we get Erd, who is fate, or and also the word. Um, they give her a feminine tie in House of Earth and Blood, but, like, a feminine pronoun but then in hosab it kind of shifts a little bit in hosab 64 it says benevolent far-seeing erd and then this is when they go into the temple with the under king and it says a pyre smoked atop a black stone altar at the center of the temple a stone throne at the dais loomed at the rear of the space no statues ever adorned erd's temple no depiction of the goddess had ever been made Fate took too many forms to capture one figure. And then it goes on to say, because the Underking was sitting in it, and they're like, you disrespect Erd by sitting in the thing, and he's just like, hmm. I thought Faye bowed to Luna, but perhaps you remember the old beliefs from the time when Erd was not a goddess, but a force winding between worlds, when she was the vat of life, a mother to all, a secret language of the universe. The Fae worshipped her then. So, yeah, word, language of the universe, word marks, vat of life, cauldron with its everescent symbols that were pouring out of it, you know, all that great stuff. So, again, I'd caveat that, Erd being, like, a goddess, you know, as not really being, like, the truth all the way. Then we have Luna, um, who is described a tiny, tiny bit, but not, like, super detailed. They... Luna's temple is, um, like, a kind of a big deal in House of Earth and Blood. And in House of Earth 21, they actually go into it. And it says, 30 feet high. 30 feet? 30 feet high? That's a big statue. Luna sat in a carved 
golden throne, the goddess lovingly rendered in shimmering moonstone, a silver tiara full with a full moon held by two crescent ones graced her upswept curling hair. Her sandaled feet lay two twin wolves, their bayful eyes daring any pilgrim to come closer. Across the back of her throne, a bow of solid gold had been slung, its quiver full of silver arrows. The pleats of her high, thigh-length robe draped across her lap, veiling the slim fingers resting there. Both wolves and fay claimed Luna as their patron goddess, had gone to war over whom she favored a millennia long past. And while the wolves' connection to her had been carved into the statue with stunning detail, the nod to the fay had been missing for two years. The horn. Obviously, I think it's, you know, now you, you look back and it, it's kind of like a big old eye roll that the wolves and the fay like, were fighting over Luna when we learned that the shifters are fay. So that she is both their goddess. They're all fae. Come on now. We learn that in her temple, they um, give stag sacrifice that are still being burned in her honor. Do they go into detail of why? No. No. Oh, I wanted... I forgot to mention. The very first mention of Luna is... Um, actually, in the Viper Queen's office, and she has a little statue of Luna posed atop it, the goddess's bow aimed at the shifter's face. That is wild to me. And I think um, it might have been, Sarah mentioned some time ago that on her desk, she keeps things that, like, give her inspiration or that are meaningful to her, and I kind of wonder if that was, like, a little peak of Sarah coming into play, and I, I wonder what that means to the Viper Queen. Why have Luna posed atop her computer with her arrow pointing at her? We, like, we do learn that Luna has priestesses, and they are meant to stay in eternal maidenhood, just as Luna had no mate or lover, so they would also not have um it's interesting that they like talked about the burning sacrifice of a stag when in hosab one it says the crowd through the crowd to study a towering statue of luna aiming her bow towards the heavens two hunting dogs at her feet and a stag nuzzling her hips uh, okay anyways <laughs> why both okay sure we get a tiny bit of information about maybe Luna's powers in Hosab 39, and this is with the astronomer, and he says, Luna, guard me, your bow bright against the darkness, your arrows like silver fire shooting into hell. I'm not gonna theory, not gonna draw parallels, but you should see my face. <laughs> We get a little bit of information moving on to the next goddess on Cathona, but not a lot. Um, and the first mention of her is in House of Earth and Blood, chapter 27, and it says, Through all, love is possible. It was an ancient saying dating back to some god he couldn't remember. Cathona, probably, what with all the mother goddess stuff she presided over. Most of the information we get about Cathona 
is actually in parallel with solace and their embrace. And it says in House of Earth and Blood, chapter 22, a small statue of Solus and Cathona portrayed as a son with male features burying his face in a pair of mountain-shaped breasts, the holy image known as simply the embrace. Her mother even wore a simplified symbol, a circle nestled atop two triangles as a silver pendant. And then it's later also called the Union of Solus and Cathona. And Bryce kind of, like, pokes fun at it and at her mom, but I think it's, I think there's something deeper here because Randall and Ember were considered and deemed holy vessels of Solas and Cathona. Is that ever touched upon? Nope. What does that mean? Nobody knows. Could uh, Nobody knows if Randall was the vessel for Solas, but he wasn't actually the birth father of Bryce, then what does that make the... No one... Don't ask questions, Lillian. Don't ask questions. <sighs> Something that gets, that, that gets brought up about her... Uh, oh, there's like three pieces of information and... Okay, so I'm gonna bounce down one because it kind of goes into the whole amber pregnant vessel solace thing in hosab 52 it says with talking about hypaxia it says but the touch on that knot the broom vanished no it shrank into a golden brooch of cathona the earth goddess ripe with child hypaxia pinned the brooch onto her shoulder of her gauzy blue robes do we ever learn if she birthed that child do we ever learn if there's a demigod of solace in cathona no 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 no. Is it interesting that we have, like, Cathona, who, this is, like, a very, I wasn't going to theory, but, um, here we are. In Hosab 29, it says, I swear upon Cathona's dark crown that no living beings other than yourselves are currently on the island. And the Underking wouldn't fuck with invoking the Earth Goddess name in a vow. So, Ember has black, dark hair. Um, the Autumn King has the flame power. Cathona and Solas having a kid. Like, could that have equaled Bright? Like, like, is that a connection into the whole vessel business? No, I don't know. I'm trying to make sense of it, but there's no sense to be made. It's all chaos. It's all nonsense. All this God's business is nonsense. I'm too practical sometimes for, like, religion. <laughs> if I'm gonna be real honest with you guys because I want a question I want to know and there's not always stuff to know you know the last thing I want to talk about about Cathona is Hosab 22 and they're talking about the autumn equinox we shall have our mating ceremony there she's talking about the uh, Celestia and Ephraim and it says here in Lunathan a month away the holiday known as Death's Day which we do have in, a in Throne of Glass was a lively one despite its name. It was a day of balance between dark and light. When the veil between the living and the dead was thinnest, Cathona began her preparations for her upcoming slumber then. Does that ever get touched? What? What is it? The slumber. What? Uh-huh. 
Okay. Cool. What does that mean? No answers? Cool. 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 I did learn recently that the, the autumn equinox is actually the perfect balance between day and night, which I did not know. Does it have anything to do with that? Not really. Did I want to just say it anyways? Sure. And then the last thing, um, I said, I keep saying it's the last thing. In Hosab 56, we get a glimpse of um, Hypaxia's room. And it says, despite the plush furniture, the room was definitely belonged to a witch. A small crystal altar to Cathona adorned the eastern wall. Covered in various tools of worship, a large obsidian scrying mirror hung above it, and a fireplace built into the southern wall had various iron arms, presumably to hold cauldrons during spells. A royal suite, yes, but a workroom as well. So that's all we know about, like, how to worship Cathona. A mirror, some tools, a fire, and a cauldron. To move on to Solus, um, there actually isn't any information on Solus other than what we get about him and Cathona. He's a sun god, but like, what does that mean? We don't know. We know nothing. Nothing. Not a depiction of him. What he looked like, we don't know other than he likes boobies. <laughs> I don't make the rules, I just follow them. The interesting thing that we get here um, after him, the last kind of like actual god we get mentioned is Thur, who was a demigod. Um, he also has a planet named after him in Midgard, as seen um at the astronomers. And that's all we really get of him. He was just an ancient thunder god who maybe made a sword. There are no like real depictions of him. They they don't say that Hunt looks exactly like him but they do say that hunt is a like is is like a rebirth of him what does that mean don't know we don't know no nothing i've got nothing we, they don't even say if they had wings they don't not, nothing aside from they had washboard abs i guess he could do laundry but like that's it we do know that there were other gods on Midgard before the Asteri, and we learned that in Hosab 15, and it says, ancient humans and their gods dwelled here. I've seen ruins of their civilization deep beneath the sea. And that's all we get on those people and their forgotten gods. And then there is an interesting question that gets brought up in Hosab 23, and it says, hell is another world, another planet, at Ada said so months ago, I mean. The demons worship different gods than we do. But what happened when the worlds overlapped? When demons came over here? Do their gods come here with them? And all of us, the Vanir, we all came from somewhere else. We were immigrants into Midgard. But what became of our home worlds? Our home gods? Do they still pay attention to us? Remember us? Rune rubbed his jaw. This is some serious sacrilegious shit for lunchtime conversation. The postcards with your mom I can handle, but this? I need some coffee. She shook her head and closed her eyes, unable to suppress the chill down her spine. I just have this feeling. Rune said nothing, and she opened her eyes again. Well, anyways, I'll see you guys next week. <laughs> 
I'm kidding. I'm not kidding, actually. That's all. Um, other than the fact, the last mention of gods in Hosab um, is Regulus saying, we are gods, higher beings. And then he had a burning hand, very similar to Aelin and Mala. But, you know, what am I going to say about that? Because that's a tailspin I don't want to go into. Um, yeah, so that's... that. We don't... That's all the information I have. I was requested to do this episode. Um, and I was really excited to do it because I think it is an important episode. I just wish that I had, like... I feel like I gave you nothing. I, I really do. And I wish I had more to give you that was more tangible and, and more connective. But I really, I don't have anything. And I can only hope that we might get some clarity on this coming forward into the, into the world. Again, as we pointed out last week, that we don't actually have confirmation that the Tog gods died. We just know that Aelin ripped the hole into their world and kind of left him to it. Um, we don't really have any kind of confirmation of how much influence they had in Throne of Glass. We don't know how their power was passed down, if it was Silva's power, or if they just gave that trait to Silva. Like, nothing. We don't get, like, not a lot of nudges. I, I don't think we get any, like, ha like, warm hands on people in Crescent City. So, I don't... I don't know, but I, I think that I think that Bryce has really opened up the conversation there. Like our home gods, do they still pay attention to us? Do we remember us? What about our old worlds? Like what it what is that? What happened to that? And I I'm really excited to see that come to fruition, either in future books or hopefully the world of Throne of Glass where we get like an actual detailed description of the gods and, and more of an explanation on that. Because again, how did they get stuck? Make it make sense. Make it make sense. Do you hear that plane? Why is it so loud? Okay. Um, I'm not going to just continue to go why, 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 what, 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 how, 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 because um, there won't be any answers. So that's all I'm going to say on it. Um, I'm just going to reiterate again, like, just, I'm always towing that line of, like, what are the gods? What does it mean? You know, all that kind of stuff. And I think I really do fall back onto the line of, like, especially because Inkoa became such a prevalent, like, thought of they are just creatures from another world, like, that they could be a steery. Because I think it just makes sense narratively to me. But, um, you know, if someone were to present me with evidence to say the otherwise, I, I'm not, like, stubborn enough or headstrong enough to be like, no, I don't believe you. Like, I totally would believe you. Because, like, it's just kind of, like, so up in the air. So up in the air. <sighs> but, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm really bummed, like... Considering the fact that we get all the names of the Crescent City gods, but we don't actually get any, like, detail on them, which blows. Would have liked that, but we don't. And that's okay. Everything's fine. I'm, it's fine. It's cool. I'm a casual fan. It's all fine.
Bryce did bring up that question about, like, hell having gods and stuff, and next week, I'm, so we're, we, we did all the canon information we have the gods, next week we're going to, I'm going to do a character, a, a chapter breakdown of the chapter with Apollyon and Hunt, and then I want to lead it into everything we know about the Princes of Hell canonically, because I think that's going to be a really cool episode. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing next week, and uh, to kind of just, like, segue and flow into our next topics, because I, I like when episodes kind of, like, flow a little bit. It's not just, like, choppy-choppy, which sometimes they are choppy-choppy, but I like when they flow, because it, it feels like a more linear lesson plan that I'm pulling out of my ass constantly. <sighs> all right thank you so much for listening i hope you guys have a wonderful week um i hope that this i don't know if it gave you any clarity but at least gave you some thoughts to mull over in the next week and just kind of churn over in your own heads do you guys think that the tone of glass gods are coming back into play do we think we'll get to learn more about them do we think that the forgotten gods and akatar could be important like you know obviously kashi is going to be very prevalent coming going forward but like is he actually a god like you know what is it I, I it's just it's it's like when sarah uses realm when she really means world or planet that's kind of how i feel about gods to be honest it's like a it's kind of a wishy-washy thing um but it is what it is and it's fine and it's cool and we're casual calm fans what is up with these airplanes can you hear them i hope not i'm you could definitely hear that one you have to be able to hear that one it's like a fighter jet flying through <sighs> um so yeah i i just i don't know i'm still confused about the 12 to 9 thing because it's nine nine figurines in in air fire but then 12 in that, that go to the world. I don't know. Um, I just, that's just going to drive me crazy. And also Regulus at the very end going, we are gods. What does that mean? What do you mean? Sarah. So before they were gods in, in, in Throne of Glass, and then you turn into the creatures in the other planet, and then you go from the Asteria being creatures to another planet to them being gods. What does that mean? What are you talking about? Ah! I need a nap. <laughs> one of those episodes where like where I started and I, I thought I was crazy before and like I then I, I did notes and I thought I was kind of like okay I got kind of a grasp I'm a, I feel like a little bit sane and then at the end of the episode I feel completely unhinged and I know nothing woohoo all right I'll see you guys later bye